Hello and welcome to the Union Jews podcast. Welcome to the Union Jews podcast, the UK's only all things union programme. Produced for your digital download, delight, sharing and appreciation. In this week's episode, what was the Prime Minister thinking when he told us all to go back to work if we could? And we have Claire Copeman from the TUC talking about the work she and her team are doing to embed and engage with young workers everywhere. It's a great episode. It's all here for you right now. Hello, listeners, and you're very welcome to join us here on the Union Jews podcast. What a week. What a week it's been. Sunday evening. Seems a long time ago now already, doesn't it? The Prime Minister says, if you can't work at home, then you should try and go back to your place at work. Confusion reigns. How can you do that if you haven't got childcare? How can you do that if your workplace isn't open? How can you do that if you can't access public transport? How can you do that and maintain safe distancing? There was a chorus of condemnation for the confusion that that announcement generated you had something that I think is unprecedented or probably unprecedented you have a a suggestion that schools could start going back from the 1st of June on a phased and staggered limited basis all the teaching unions have come out in a coordinated fashion and said hold on it's got to be safe we've got to have discussions about this we're not just going to say yeah fine we'll go ahead and and look to go back on the 1st of June so there's this huge row and hoo-ha quite understandably about this confusion when there needs to be clarity and then and then we get the clarity or sort of we get a 50 60 page document about how brits can go back to work safely according to the government website now i mean this sort to put a lot of detail and context and practicalities around uh, around the prime minister's statements and it worked i mean fair play you know it worked to 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 a degree but there's still lots and lots of questions to be answered especially about about transport but perhaps the the important thing was not so much that the clarification was published but how it got to be published which was as a result of genuinely welcome collaboration and partnership between the CBI the TUC and, and government and this sort of tripartite working which is which is you know it makes sense but so often has been lacking in in, in recent in recent years so then we get to Tuesday we get the Chancellor of the Exchequer heeding the messages and the representations made by unions and extending the furlough scheme, the Corona Job Retention Scheme, to give it its full title, to the end of October, albeit with changes around August time. Now, that's really important when you think about it because because 7.5 million workers being furloughed represents about a quarter of the working age population. That's a huge chunk, and it's a huge expense as well, but it gets us the concession that is really important in all this is not just that it's saving people from redundancy, very important as it is, but the longer lasting legacy, in my view, is you have a government, a conservative government, recognizing that it's appropriate and possible to intervene in the labor market in this way. Now, by the time we get to the end of October, we'll have had the 80% furlough job retention scheme going for what about six months, seven, seven months. Why not bite the bullet? Why not say, right, we're going to have a universal basic income because that's going to, in the end, save the economy far more than it's going to cost. 
That's what I would do anyway. In the meantime, going back to the uh, desire that people should go back to work, one of the good things about what the Chancellor did do in announcing the extension of furlough is to slap down those voices. Not very many of them, I'm pleased to say, but nevertheless they are there to say, well, you know, it's all too easy. Workers are getting very comfortable, getting too easy, too used to living on furloughed income. I mean, that I think is rubbish. The Chancellor quite rightly said he didn't think anyone enjoyed staying on furlough. That's certainly my experience and I'm sure the experience of you listeners as you talk to your friends, your neighbours, your members and your colleagues. So it was good to sort of put that back in its box uh, very firmly. And it was also good to see that the calls for public sector pay restraint, which kind of spiked up earlier this week, die back down just as quickly. But an important warning sign for us to know that there are people with those views out there. And of course... People have not been slow to remind the Prime Minister, the Chancellor, all of us, of the very important terms of Section 44 of the 1996 Employment Relations Act, which is the one that you've seen quoted about saying that people don't have to work in conditions that are unsafe. It's a really important protection, building on the existing protections of the 1974 Health and Safety at Work Act and all the legislation about personal protective equipment. But don't, don't. Don't just say to your employer, you know what, I'm not coming in, it's not safe, without talking to your union first. If you're not a member of a union, join a union. If there's no union in your workplace, you can still join a union. And you can find out which union to join by looking at the TUC website, www.tuc.org.uk. Just a small correction before you all email in and tell me I've got it wrong. It is, of course, the 1996 Employment Rights Act. Turning now to our special guest for this episode, it's Claire Copeman, a campaigner with the TUC who leads on Congress's work on youth, youth engagement, youth recruitment, youth youth organising. And youth engagement is uh, an existential challenge for the union movement, isn't it? With way fewer than 10% of all 16 to 24-year-olds actually in a union, but yet with that demographic making up the vast majority of the workforce in hospitality, catering, a fair chunk of the, the workforce in social care as well, areas that are really hard to, to recruit in. The work that Claire and her colleagues do at Congress House on this is absolutely essential. And it's kind of like the holy grail, isn't it? If we can find a way, find a way to successfully engage with young people, that would be transformational as well as vital for ensuring continuity and, and succession planning in our own organisations. So in our discussion, we got straight to the crux of the matter. Let's hear what she's got to say. Do you feel that we're making, making progress in organising young workers? And if so, how do we know that? What does it look like? We definitely are making some progress. Um, and I think that there are really brilliant examples out there. I think McStrike immediately comes to mind. The work to organise TGI Friday workers was great. But what I would say is that good practice like that still isn't common practice. And we need to be doing a lot more to adapt what union membership looks like for the gig economy, for people who aren't in recognised workplaces. And we also need to do more to engage with digital and all that has to offer and find a way that we can be offering a comparable experience to what a lot of young workers are used to now, signing up to Spotify or flexing your Netflix account up and down. Sure. I mean, a majority of the workforce are now millennial or at least smartphone natives, if, if you like. Uh, and yet so much of union work seems to be stuck in the analogue era. Yes. Um, I, I, wonder, I wonder what, what you feel can be done to, to try and shift those unions that are still by default analogue based into a more digital 
more digital stance? It's definitely a difficult issue. And I think it's always infinitely harder to change existing structures than it is to set up fresh ones in a completely new way. But we have to face up to that challenge. We have to be able to reform and upgrade what we've already got. Um, We can't just throw everything out the window. I think that unions need to better understand just the real necessity of it. Like, it's actually something that we've seen during this corona crisis, that digital is an essential part of working life now. And if there's any silver lining to all of this, to this crisis, I think it will be that unions will have had to get to grips with digital really quick. And I don't think that that will fall away when we're all back in our offices. I think that that greater familiarity with digital will help in the long run. Yeah, I mean, I think I think it is a step change because the the necessary digital revolution or rapid evolution you could say in the in these difficult circumstances suddenly makes people realize that if they don't travel to meetings they have a lot more you know uh, work-life balance their travel bills are less the environmental impact is less actually the quality of the what they're discussing isn't any less mm. and that can feed through into some very dramatic changes in terms of how unions organize themselves but let me be a bit kind of con- controversial in a, in a way mm. um Union, perhaps is, is it not the case that the, perhaps why unions are slow to adapt to digital ways of working and to engaging with young people is because there's a conservative with a small c demographic amongst many union 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 reps. So, it, does that mean that the the structures are incapable of changing, or is it a question of just chipping away and finding standard bearers? I mean, I'm thinking I'm thinking of the bakers. Bakers Union, for example, mm. who who seem to be, I mean, you spoke about the muck strikes, they were largely behind that. I think they're, they're very closely involved in the spoon strikes campaign to get Weatherspoons workers a better, a better, a better deal. Is that, is that, is it a question of finding standard bearers to try and, to try and lead the movement into, into today? Yeah, I think there's a lot there. So firstly, I would agree with you that I think our rep structure and our leadership in the movement is not representative of the wider membership but particularly wider society and that is an issue that I uncovered in my research that young workers perceive us as not being terribly representative and that that is a kind of a turn-off and you're right we've also got a real demographic time bomb coming with reps that in about the next 10 to 15 years about half of all reps are going to reach their well-deserved retirement and if we think of how absolutely integral reps are to how millions of people get helped around the UK every week and how unions just function it's so urgent to get younger workers to be members and then active and then able to be reps themselves pretty sharpish I I do think it's possible for the movement to change I think though that it's going to have to come centrally possibly more than from reps reps aren't in charge of how you let your union know when you've changed address for example and definitely within the last couple of years I've had to call up an office to tell them rather than just being able to um, change that in my profile on the back end of somewhere and I would agree with you that I think having 
lived examples that we can point to from within the movement to show people what that looks like is really helpful for other unions to be able to better imagine how they might be able to transform their own structures and processes. Yeah, I, would, I mean, I, I take the point very much that, that actually if, if the leadership of, of, of a union says we are going to make our structures as accessible as possible, the, the change of address example that you, you quoted, but we're also going to create structures and opportunities for younger reps to get involved, then, then that percolates through the union. I mean, I, as, as you know, I used to be a national official at the Communication Workers Union, and it was only because the leadership of the union made a determined effort to say we're open for business for young members that that our young member structure developed and flourished and and thrived yeah I i think there's going to be a really interesting challenge though where some of how we do business at the minute is not going to be that appealing to the majority of young workers it's not the typical young worker who's going to want to sit in a branch meeting approve the minutes of the last meeting and speak to a motion and while it's absolutely critical that we maintain our democracy as a value within the movement there might be other ways that we can express that on the other hand there are a lot of existing members for who that tradition and way of working is really really important and they would be quite unhappy not to be able to engage in that formal process of democracy and so as unions hopefully are successful about bringing a new generation into the movement, there's going to be further challenges down the line about how do you keep existing members happy while at the same time meeting the needs of younger generations. And that balancing act is going to be quite challenging. In, in, indeed, it's, but as you, say, as you say, necessary, both for reasons of accountability and because unions aren't just about you know organizing young members new young members are about servicing the existing members yeah. as, as well i mean have have there been particular initiatives that have been across your desk or, or, or metaphorically speaking you know that that you've thought yeah this is this is something that could really have traction on a wider basis i think one of the most interesting examples is at the nus and what they've done with their committee structures and essentially replaced formal committee style meetings with less formal working groups where people can come in and out as they've got the time and energy for it rather than having to be formally nominated and elected right okay yes you could yes i I know a number of unions who have switched who who have supplemented their sort of annual conference policy making cycle with policy fora for for example which would be a, a a similar sort of thing and i suppose then you can you can hypothecate can't you and say actually Actually, if each branch or region's entitled to say ten delegates to a to a forum, then at least one of them's got to be under twenty five, yeah, or something like that. Yeah, you could you you could you could see how it could be done. So so your your report, the missing half million, presumably was was something that that tried to raise a big flag to say to say there are half a million people who should be members who aren't, yes. and this has got this is a challenge and a problem. Absolutely, and it was not only meant to be a kind of provocation and as you say like raising that flag but also an offer to the movement that we know that unions are really busy day to day looking after all of their existing members they've got a lot on their plates and it can be challenging to sometimes do the kind of in-depth research that can be really helpful when you're trying to reach a whole new group And so over three years, the TUC conducted the most significant innovation programme that the UK union movement has seen to explore 
the problem of younger workers joining in real depth to come up with possible solutions. And so the report outlines what is the challenge as we see it, the methodology, what was it that we did, and it goes into some detail about some of the tools and techniques that we used so that other unions could take them up and play with them as they find appropriate. It outlines what it is that we found, and there's a lot in that research that unions can just take and run with themselves, what we tried to address it, and then wider recommendations coming out of that. So there's a lot there for different unions to chew over, and my real hope is just that it's made use of by as many people as possible. Well, I mean, the, the report, The Missing Half Million, already got a, got a lot of traction before normality was interrupted by coronavirus. Um, what, are there any that, that you're particularly keen on, the ones that you, you think actually this could really make a transformational difference, the ones that, that you've got high hopes for amongst the range of tools that, that are in that publication? I would say, for me, particularly important is this approach of what's called being user-centred, and I think, or audience-led, And I think sometimes it can be a bit difficult in the trade union movement. Sometimes I find I talk to people and there can be a bit of suspicion about that kind of language or a bit of suspicion around using tools that are seen to come from the private sector. Whereas for me, I think tools that the private sector can use to be harmful to workers, the union movement can use those same tools, but in completely different ways and can actually use them to really benefit workers. And the whole idea of being user-centred or audience-led would be that we think about the needs of members or prospective members first, that we really get into their heads, we think about the context of their lives, what is it that they need from us, and then we design what we're offering around that, rather than sometimes starting with, okay, what's the easiest or the cheapest way for us to deliver something? Yeah, no, I get that. I mean, it's, sometimes people call it member-centred uh, yes, trade unionism. Yeah, it's a bit similar to like patient-centred care in the health service. Exactly. Or something, something like that. But, but also it, it's an old organising kind of adage, isn't it, that you need to go to where people are rather than where you want them to be. I remember one general secretary, who I won't, won't name, um, um, after the 2015 election saying there needed to be a fundamental change of policy. It's not a question of going to people and... and and banging on still louder or more insistently about stuff that they've already said they don't want. There needs to be a, a, there needs to be a new offer. Mm. So, that, yeah, that's quite interesting. I was also struck in your report, uh, Claire, by, by the emphasis on innovation. And, I, 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 you know, there were some very, there's very strong words about, about innovation that unions, so the union movement is, is usually not very innovation friendly in the, sense, in the sense that we haven't got a, a habit of trying things knowing that they might fail. And I, and I just thought, gosh, you know, that, that kind of rings true. And I, I suppose combined yes. with the initiatives aimed at engaging young people, there needs to be a change of habit. People need to get into, into kind of innovation in, in, a, in a greater way. Absolutely. Yeah, I think that's really key. And I think you see it in other kind of bits of the economy. There's like an apocryphal tale about Blockbuster and how as the world was changing around them and the rise of digital, they actually had a chief executive who could see the writing on the wall and went to their board and said, look, guys, I think our business model isn't going to hold out much longer. My strong recommendation would be that we move to online video streaming and that's our offer and the board considered it and then didn't go for it and it was because the way the old business model was to make money off late fees and they couldn't Ah, understand 
such a different paradigm of where would their profit come from if they were offering video streaming. So they didn't go for it. And we all know what happened to Blockbuster. Now, the union movement is too important to go that way. And I think we need to be trying out new things, seeing what works, making use of all of the tools, all of the techniques that are available to us and just having a go at things. Yeah, I, I agree. We, I mean, you know, the the rate of unionisation amongst young people is 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 way below ten percent. It's a kind of, and, and when you tie that up with the march of time and the impact that has on existing reps, then it, it's an existential question, isn't, isn't it? Um, I, I I was I was thinking about how young workers are faring in the current the current crisis. No surprise that fiscal studies has, has come out with a report just in the last day or so say, saying. It's going to be disastrous unemployment effects on 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 sectors of the economy which are mostly populated by young workers, which are which tend to be low pay sectors and uh, and yes. precarious work se- sectors. So, given the work you've been doing and given the plight of this dem- demographic, how 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 do we need to set ourselves if we can set ourselves to reach out to those people once once things get back to normal? Mm. I mean, I would say we need to be reaching out now. And I don't think it's a case of reaching out with a traditional junior union offer necessarily. I think now is exactly the time where we need to be showing, not telling this group that we're on their side and that we're fighting for them. And whether that looks like recognising that many gig economy workers who are disproportionately younger workers are on the front lines too, like delivery riders. Mm, um mm thinking about how younger workers are more likely to be living in shared houses where conditions are less ideal to work from home. Not many millennials have got home offices ready, set up and ready to go. And then after the crisis, I think we need to be holding the government to account. The government is going to have to take specific steps to try and get young workers back on track rather than allowing them to bear the brunt of this as they did after the global financial crisis. Yes, I think it's it's a it's a rather uncomfortable feeling, isn't it? In the sense that that yes, you can see immediately how people, uh, how how these young worker low paid sectors are hit particularly hard. Businesses are, are closed, hopefully temporarily. These people are now out of work. No surprise that applications for universal credit have spiked hu- yeah. hugely, and you kind of think, you know, you just hope that the mindset in government is not. Well, when it's all back to normal and the pubs open and the cinemas open and theatres open, then all these people who were casually employed, then casually unemployed, will be casually re-employed. But it, you know, the lessons of the, uh, the lessons of the crash are that there's a long, long-term scarring effect on the economy. Exactly. So yes, <laughs> ch- ch- challenging times. Definitely. Challenging times indeed. I mean, indeed. just one area to think about, I think, would be training and routes to progression. That even before this crisis, we knew that younger workers were less likely to get access to training in work than older workers, which seems very counterintuitive because younger workers by definition are nearer towards the start of their careers than older workers. And so coming out of this crisis, I think better training provision to address that scarification effect and help young workers continue to move on, develop and progress would be really welcome. Yes, indeed. Yes, indeed. I mean, uh, you know, the the apprenticeship levy has not been the best, the best initiative or the most most popular initiative. But if there's a silver lining in that, if if it creates a training culture, 
Uh, and if it's regarded as normal and appropriate, it, hopefully that can spread uh, into a more generalised uh, approach to, to, to training. Yeah, for sure. Definitely. And beyond apprenticeships as well, I think something else that I tried to emphasise in the report is that young workers are very far from a homogenous group. And if we're looking at people up till 30, say, some people are going to have a decade of experience in the workplace, but still need training and need support to develop and progress. Well, well, it, yeah. I mean, train. There's there's lifelong training, isn't it? Yeah. Isn't it? It's bizarre, isn't it, that some people that, that you know, some areas of the economy have continuing professional development, and and actually some don't. Yeah. <laughs> and you sort of think, you know, that, you know, and there's a gap there to 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 be bridged, yeah. for sure, for sure. Yeah. So, if you could, if you could jump in a time machine, and and skip over to the other side of the Corona mm. uh, virus crisis armed with the missing half million report in, in one hand and you had a superpower to deliver one thing from that report that you wanted what would it be and why mm, that's a good question i think that every union is in a different place on this there are differing levels of re- successful recruitment among young workers there are differing levels of facing up to the challenge and there are differing levels of digital engagement. And I think that every union could do one more thing to help mm. recruit a new generation of workers into the movement. And so if I could have one thing, I would just love for every union to find the thing that's the most appropriate and the most relevant for them to do. That would, I mean, that would be wonderful, isn't it? You could imagine, you can imagine... You can imagine collecting them uh, and, and then, you, you know, you would be able to say here, here is the compendium of what of each single thing that each individual union is doing. And when you look at it collectively and holistically, it's a huge step forward. Exactly. And as you say, that unions are all at different places and therefore what's right for one won't be right for another. But everyone can do something. Absolutely. And to help that, I'm so willing to go in. Any union can just get in touch. And if they want to talk anything through, if they want to try and investigate and find out, actually how could they engage with this from their particular circumstance i will go anywhere when i'm allowed to travel um, to have those <laughs> conversations that sounds, that sounds wonderful so so a couple of things then if people want to access the report and find out about the work you're doing on behalf of young workers what's the can you signpost us to the relevant url if you google tuc and missing half million you should come up with a digital version of the report or Fantastic. drop me an email, ccoatman at tuc.org.uk, um, and I will send you out hard copies, I'll send you out the URL, I'll have a phone call with you, whatever you like. That's brilliant. Claire, thank you so much. That's great. You, there you go. You, you've had the challenge, listeners, whether you're in a, at a national level, a union, a regional level, a branch level, or just a workplace level, there is something that you can do. Claire has told you there is something more that you can do, we, could, we can all do. So thanks so much for spending time with us on the podcast, Claire. Good luck for the, for the period going forward and let's hope we can all get out and about yeah, soon. Yeah, thanks so much, Simon. Cheers. So interesting stuff there, I'm sure you'd agree, from, from Claire. And I'd like to emphasise that message she left us with at the end. Every union can do something more in terms of engaging with, organising, recruiting young members can just be a small thing it doesn't have to be a huge great strategy but every union can do something on that and if you pull all those actions together 
what a fantastic compendium that would be, how inspiring it would be, what cross-fertilisation of ideas could take place, and most importantly, what an impact that would have on the percentage of young workers who are in trade unions. So please take Claire up on her opportunity. Copy me in, email me directly if you like, and I'll pass the information on to her, com. This is an area in which we can, we must make a difference. Now, since the Missing Half Million report was published, there has been further work carried out on engaging with young members, and particularly in the context of coronavirus, because, of course, the areas of employment that are most at risk, that are hardest hit, are those areas with a preponderance of young workers in them, hospitality, retail, especially the non-food sector, uh, for example, obvious, obvious examples. And so many people in these sectors are not only young but furloughed. It's difficult to see the high street bouncing back in the way it was anytime soon there's no there's no test track trace regime there's no vaccination we're going to be socially distancing and kind of constrained for the foreseeable future i i would say so there's a risk that as soon as the protection of furlough finishes we might see a wave of redundancies and of course what the stats show us uh, looking back over the last 10 15 20 years is that when people are out of work at the start of their working lives, younger workers be, being laid off, that has a scarring effect, has a scarring effect on the amount of money they earn, which can take up to 10 years to erode fully, can have a scarring effect on their chances of employment. So it's a re- you know, this is a really difficult and desperate situation. And that's why the TUC has, absolutely rightly in my view, looked at not just a job guarantee scheme, but an enhanced scheme aimed at the particular needs and challenges facing young young workers. So, for example, there should be, according to the TUC, a minimum six-month job with accredited training, that the criteria should be that we offer this to as many people as possible, but prioritising young workers and those facing unemployment of six months or more. Workers shouldn't be displaced. These should be new courses, new new hires. There should be a community public benefit and some other initiative that needs to be taken uh, by government to, for example, decarbonise the economy or ensuring new jobs contribute to rebuilding uh, the country. Local labour market needs have to be taken into account, of course, and it's essential that in doing all this, equality is both promoted and protected. So when you think about the extent to which the government has intervened already to meet the challenge of covid it's not inconceivable that actually there should be a fair hearing and action on this youth-orientated job guarantee scheme. Now, the scheme, albeit funded by national government, can only be really be delivered at devolved nation and local level with inputs from local leaders, trade unions, businesses, working alongside existing networks such as the Job Centre Plus network. It makes sense, doesn't it, as the TUC is saying, to have a new corona reconstruction and recovery panel if we're really going to pull together to get the country back on its feet. But you also need to look at the sort of cliff-edge relationship between earnings and universal credit. Now, that's clearly quite an ambitious strategy uh, with an ambitious set of objectives from the TUC. But we've got to think big. We've got to think imaginatively. We've got to look at what issue it is we're trying to address. And we're trying to address an unprecedented economic crash, the likes of which we've never seen in our lifetime or in our grandparents' lifetime or in their grandparents' lifetime. And then you start getting back to the early 1700s where you probably did see something along along those lines. And we need to reconstruct the country and take advantage of the opportunity to rebalance the economy as well into something that works 
better than it did before. Well, that's just about it for this episode. Thank you so much for choosing to spend time with us. Hope you've enjoyed the last half hour or so. Hope it's made you think a little bit. If you like what you hear, then share the podcast. Rate us on the podcasting platform of your choice. Email us in if you got an idea for something that should be on a future episode union dues that makes you think.com email in as well if you've heard something that you think oof didn't enjoy that we need to know feedback's all important we want you to be part of the discussion you can tweet us at Jews union and if you head on over to the makes you think website you'll find a companion blog in which you'll find links to all the subjects and all the campaigns that we've mentioned in this episode before going i just want to pay tribute to and shout out to key workers and frontline staff for continuing to keep us safe, keep the country going, look after us all. And a sharp reminder that this really is a matter of life or death is in the sad, sad case of Belly Majinga, the TSSA member who has died of COVID, having been assaulted by a member of the public while she was working at Victoria Station. Proof that the front line is not always where you think it's going to be. Condolences to, to her family and well done to the TSSA, her union, for not letting go of this issue and for pressing this issue and a determination to, to seek justice for her and her family. Until the next episode of the Union Jews podcast, which will be in around a week or so's time, thanks for listening. Stay well, stay safe, stay indoors if you can, because that really is for the best. And I'll see you soon. Bye for now. The Union Dues podcast is presented by me, Simon Sapper. It is a Makes You Think production.